Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. This is James Altucher. We're bringing you once again the James Altucher Show, and I'm here with my very good friend, Ken Kirsten, who, Ken, I can't believe how many things you've done in your career. And so welcome, first off, welcome to the show. James, thank you for that kind introduction. I'd like to make clear to all of your listeners that we are not related. <laughs> no, but you are paying me a, a lot of money to say good things about you, so I have to uh, I have to keep on saying them. No, I'm just kidding about that. But first, I want to give a little brief intro of you. You're the editor-in-chief of the New York Observer newspaper, which I just want to say has been one of my favorite newspapers for 20 years. And the reason I can tell you that is I remember 20 years ago, reading this newspaper right before a date because I thought the date would be interested in me that I was reading such a high-culture newspaper as the New York Observer. This was like in 1995. And now you're well, the editor-in-chief of that. You know, I feel the exact same way. You know, I, I've only been the editor here for a little over a year, but I've been a huge fan and reader of The Observer uh, almost uh, its entire existence. The paper was started about 25 years ago. When I first moved to New York, you know, pre-internet, early 90s, um, it was just trying to figure out what was going on in the city. Uh, this was This was my entry point. I read The Observer, like, cover to cover because... You know, you could find out news in a lot of places, but if you really wanted to understand how the city worked and who the power players were and what the media was, was doing, The Observer was it. I agree, and that was part of the reason why I was reading The Observer, because my plan to get this girl to like me completely failed, so she didn't even know what The New York Observer was at the time. But in addition to being the editor-in-chief of, of The New York Observer, you've also helped run Giuliani's presidential campaign. You've written books. You actually co-wrote with Giuliani his book, uh, Leadership. You were involved with Giuliani Partners. Uh, you, you've been an entrepreneur with, with Green Magazine. Uh, you're an editor at Esquire. You've done so many things. And what I like about that and what I like about what we're going to discuss is you've done what I've called, you, you've created a choose-yourself career. Like nobody could have just given you the career you've had. You've had to go, you've had to go out and hunt for that career. You had to kill for that career. You, you made it up yourself as you went along. And what was, uh, there does seem to be some themes, which is that you've been very involved uh, politically. You've been very involved uh, with helping others, like your green site was a, a personal finance site. And you've been very involved in journalism. And I sort of see through you know, all of these things running through every part of your career. But I, I wanted to briefly talk about, before we talk about uh, publishing and the future of publishing and, and the New York Observer and so on, I want to talk about the Giuliana campaign and, and you know, how you got involved with Rudy Giuliani and uh, you know, what happened in that campaign. Yes, let's start with my, my most humiliating and public failures. Could we please? Yes, um, uh, we can so, get to more personal failures later. We'll start with the public ones. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, 
So I got involved with Rudy because he was, when he was mayor of New York City, it was coming toward the end, uh, you know, back, back in the old days, we were limited to two terms, um, and he was coming toward the end of his second term and was looking to, to sort of tell his story, the, the way New York City had rebounded. And um, I had written this article about this, this lawyer named David Boyes for the New York Times magazine. And David Boyes ended up signing a book deal with Talk Miramax Books. Um, and they talked to me a little bit about uh, helping him write it. Um, and then when they signed Rudy to do a two-book deal, um, they were also looking for co-writers for that. And so they they brought in like six writers um, for Rudy to meet in classic Rudy fashion. He hated them all and said, show me another six. And I was like writer number five of that well, second Why do you say that six. was classic Rudy fashion? Like, did he have not like most people? He's a demanding guy. It's not that he doesn't like most people. He's, he's very friendly and, and was a great boss for the eight or so years I worked for him. Um, but he's a demanding person, and he has a very clear sense. In fact, I've learned a lot from the, the way he manages people now that I'm in a uh, you know much less <laughs> much lesser management role, but I've taken a ton of lessons from him. But he he has a very clear vision um, of what he wants before um, you know before he he uh, hires somebody or before he becomes a partner with somebody. So he. He and I, you know, I I, uh, I was very different from the other, you know, I later found out, um, you know, because naturally I asked him, so how come I got this job? I know there were, you know, at least 11 other writers trying for it. And, um, you know, most of the other writers, first of all, they were, they were much uh, older and more established than I was. At that point, I had only written two books, only one of which was a, a, a co-written book. Um, so I didn't have this, like, long list of successes that I could point to, you know, eight bestsellers or whatever. Um, and all the other writers had come in and said, well, here's how it'll work, Your Honor. Uh, you'll go about your week, and we'll make an appointment for an hour a week, and I, I don't want to trouble you or get in your way, and I'll come back with some drafts. You'll criticize them, and, and we'll go from there. And I was like, I want to hang out with you all the time. I want to I be where you are. If there's a fire, I want to go there. If there's, if there's uh, you know, a, a cop injured in the line of duty, I want to be there. And... Um, that that ended up being being how he wanted to work as well. So it, that's that's how I've gone about my entire career. Is that I, I feel I'm better off just being exactly as honest as I can be about who I am and the way I work. It's not going to be right for everybody. I failed to get plenty of jobs that I wanted, um, but when it's right, it's it's really good because I've I've let people know what my strengths and weaknesses are. And so, okay, so you wrote this book with him. Then I see you got involved with Giuliani Partners, which was his kind of uh, almost, I don't want to say it's an investment bank, but it was like a mini investment bank slash consulting firm. And they, they sort of focused mostly on uh, uh, small capital, capitalization public companies in the defense industry and uh, the biotech industry. Uh, I, I encountered them quite a bit when I was involved in the hedge fund business financing uh, small companies. Often Giuliani partner, Partners was kind of behind the scenes somewhere. Yeah, um, that, that, that's pretty much accurate. Uh, Giuliani Partners, the consulting firm, was the part I was involved with. There was also a small uh, boutique investment bank, but that was sort of a separate company, and I didn't have too much involvement with them. You know, sometimes Rudy would speak at events, and I traveled with Rudy uh, a tremendous amount from the time he was done being mayor on January 1st, 2002, till the time uh, till he started running for president at the beginning of 2007. So I'd see those uh, investment banking guys sometimes, but that wasn't the part I was involved with. 
I was involved in the straight consultant company. Um, and really, you know, I'm not a business consultant. I, I would I have some business background um, from having started some companies and selling some companies, but most of my background is, is just plain writer, and that's that's mostly what I did for Rudy, speech writing and editing and stuff. Was most of his consulting um, basically uh, speech appearances, or was he doing um, introductions with the government, or like what? What was the nature of his consulting? Well, both of the above, but also he he uh, he was a hands-on consultant. Um, you know, Rudy gets involved, and that's that's his reputation. Sometimes uh, for better, and sometimes for worse. Um, you know, I remember in the in the the Rudy biopic in which James Woods played him. Um, there's a scene where James Woods running down stairs to the, the bowels of City Hall to figure out why something's not working and gets to the bottom of it and discovers that these two people just don't like each other and won't talk to each other and, and solves it. And that, that was really accurate in my assessment of Rudy. Like, starting with writing the book, he was deeply involved. I've done a bunch of these co-written books now. Um, and uh, as one of the great trial lawyers of his time, Rudy is deeply engaged in how to present arguments and you know he left he left the prose stylings to me um if that's not too grotesquely pretentious a phrase to use um but in terms of how to present the the thinking and the logic he was deeply involved and that's how he was as a consultant yes he gave a lot of speeches um and yes he made plenty of introductions but he had business ideas you know he 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 would look at the the way things were going you know there was one company i'm not i'm not sure which of their their clients uh, you know, revealed their names or not, so I'll, I'll refrain from saying their names. But one very well-known uh, pharmaceutical company it was a client, and they had a big problem with um, employees constantly stealing their stuff because um, I guess if you treated it or broke it up somehow, kids could get high off it. So it was a dangerous thing, and you know, really got really into the the nitty-gritty to figure out um, how to implement better security systems, better, more accountability, and better systems to to help people spot uh, theft and also to help people avoid the temptation of theft. And how, how do you avoid the temptation of theft? Well, I think if you have more people in a room, stuff like that, you know, I'm, I, I'm not an expert in this, so, so don't get me wrong, James. I could never have, have advised some company on uh, how, to, how to prevent kids from stealing drugs to get high. Um, but a couple of the suggestions were, were just just not having people alone with the stuff as much, even if it costs a little more in terms of man hours or whatever. Um, I think I think it, it it created less temptation. It's it's funny because my 11 year old daughter just came up to me and said, "You know, your kitchen cabinet is like a pharmacy." And uh, I started thinking, you know, maybe not such a good idea to keep all the medicines uh, within arm's range of a, an 11 year old. Well, so, geez, James, I want to party with you, cowboy. <laughs> so, so okay. So then the Giuliani campaign, which I, you know, I actually was there or in the hotel when he was announcing, and I was thinking, you know, this guy has a really good chance. He was he was the number one front runner at the time, and it was the it was the most brutal flame out I've ever seen in presidential history, except for maybe Muskie in 1972, but we won't get into that. Yeah, um, it, it it was brutal, James. And and what what happened is, you know, it's just like a startup world. When 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 your stock's at uh, five hundred, you're probably not as as smart as the market thinks you are. And when it's at two cents, you're probably not as dumb as it thinks you are. And that that's that's what happened with Rudy. We we were leading uh, 
you know, from from pre-announcement till about late September, basically on pure name recognition. Rudy was still basking in the warm glow of uh, universally lauded performance during the attacks of September 11th. And so people knew who he was. Um, but if you asked a lot of the, the smart money in Republican politics, um, about the difference between uh, these sort of nationwide polls and what it's really like to appeal to uh, caucus voters in Iowa and primary voters in New Hampshire. These are two very different sports. Um, so you know, if you put if you if you put a, a list of who's going to you know who do you think is going to win in the slalom, and you you listed Arnold Schwarzenegger and four people you never heard of, then then a bunch of sports fan would just put probably Arnold Schwarzenegger would win that poll over, over but, the other four. Um, but, but Rudy does connect with people. I mean, it doesn't. You have to have enormous charisma to be mayor of New York City for for two terms, and then he was you know known as America's mayor. So so what happened in New Hampshire? What happened in Iowa when he tried to? connect with with the voters well Rudy connected very well with the voters um, it, a lot of people uh, loved Rudy and, and felt like he would have been a great president but that doesn't mean he was necessarily their first choice as a Republican nominee and uh, one of the reasons I, I feel so strongly that our our, uh, our primary system is is basically broken is you're talking about tiny tiny percentages of America make these these giant decisions and they're not they're not good cross-section samples either um, you know the, the caucus system in the first place is just it's a horrible way to do it because it it, 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 it not you know by virtue of it being a party thing you're naturally going to get the most engaged individuals but in a caucus if if some of your listeners have never been them it's only the people who are the, you know willing to spend five six hours sitting around there advocating for their candidate uh, bugging their neighbors to switch their vote if they're if they had voted for someone who's not not you know in the running um, it, it necessarily favors the people on the on the fringes of either party. It's a terrible way to do it. Not to mention the fact that the Iowa is a very small state. It's it's a very homogeneous state, and you're talking about a northeast mayor with an Italian last name who uh, had some positions that were out of step with with Republican orthodoxy. So those people who didn't vote for him in Iowa, New Hampshire, I don't I don't think they were saying he wouldn't have been a good president. I would, I just think he didn't check enough of these these sort of doctrinaire boxes that you have to. I see. And then and then also, you know, you mentioned kind of the Italian background. Perhaps this was why he didn't campaign as much in the South, uh, where, you know, certainly other candidates would have more appeal. Uh, and then just the combination of everything that just was not enough energy or momentum to, to keep his campaign going. Yeah, that's how it works. I mean, it gets real, real expensive if you don't come out of one of those early states with with a big win or a big overperformance, at least, if not a win. Do you advocate getting rid of the two-party system in general? Because in general, it doesn't seem to work at all. Like, the candidates are very similar. I mean, I, I, in very rare cases, can I tell the difference in policy, actually, between Obama and Bush? Like, it just seems like the two-party system and the lack of democracy, as you mentioned, in the primary system is just a total failure. Yeah, I, I don't agree. I, I think the two-party system is a disaster, except for all the other systems that have tried democracy, which is a you know inversion of the old democracy is terrible, except for all the other systems. But um, but you think with the internet, perhaps there could be a new system. Like I could vote directly from my house for all of the you know potentially for any of the candidates. 
So, uh, you know, I can see all the candidates, I can read about their issues, I can participate in message boards or their communities or whatever, and there could be just one huge election on the internet where I could vote and learn and so on without the massive lobbying and the, the billions of dollars poured into campaigning and attack ads and so yeah, on. It just seems the like... The problem with that, James, is that it doesn't, it doesn't recognize the, the role that states play. And a lot, I hear this a lot from, from very technologically savvy and sort of future-thinking people like yourself. Uh, about, in other words, idiots. But no, I don't think they're idiots. I, I just think that they think that, that there's a, a little bit of a lack of humility where, where you think that, um, well, the founders had some good ideas uh, a thousand years ago, but now that we have the Internet, everything is different. And, I, you know, I don't think the Constitution is different. I don't think the Torah is different. I think the, these received wisdoms um, have a lot more to them than a lot of futurists are willing to concede. And what you just described is a... It's a nice utopian idea, but it doesn't it doesn't recognize the incredibly important role that the states play in keeping a check on federal power. So if everybody's voting at the exact same time in a national election, you hear a lot about getting rid of the electoral college from the same kind of people, and I, I completely oppose that idea. I think the electoral college is a brilliant idea. Well, um, what about something in the middle, though, where people vote directly for electors, but there's not necessarily a two-party system? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, we don't have uh, any law that makes a two-party system. We just have a de facto two-party system. There have been many third-party candidates who have tried. There's a couple people in Congress right now who are third-party, um, at least a couple now, and there have been others um, like Joe Lieberman um, in the recent past. So, you know, it is possible to do. Mike Bloomberg was mayor of the city for uh, eight of his 12 years as a as uh, an independent Um so it is possible to get elected um, without the two-party system. But the reason it defaults to two-party is um, because everywhere that it's not, you, you get you know these kind of parliamentary chaos systems. Um, and especially when you have a very strong chief executive, uh, you can't you can't be a strong chief executive when you only have the support of you know 11 percent that your party holds or whatever whatever coalition that you can you can string together. Well, let, let me ask about that then. Is the I mean. Over the past century in particular, the role of the chief executive has gotten a lot stronger. There have been a lot more uh, privileges taken away from Congress that the chief executive has sort of worked around the Constitution. For instance, you know, our two wars right now in, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, these are, are not official wars, you know, as per the Constitution, but they're more kind of military maneuvers. So has the chief executive taken too much power? Yes. Should power go back to the states? Yes. And how can you how can you implement that right now? I mean, it's 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 almost too late. Is it too late? I just I think that there's a there's a pendulum move on this kind of stuff. I, I can't believe um, how much the last two presidents have just seized power for themselves. Um, and when you say that there's not too much difference between, um, you know, I, I think you said Obama and Bush, I, I mean, there's a million differences on things of everyday importance to ordinary Americans. Um, but that's one in which I completely agree with you. Um, both of the last two presidents seem to have uh, this, this idea that whatever they want to do, they've got to just find some way to get it done. Uh, no matter what the Congress says, and it's it's unbelievable to me. You don't see that as much in terms of challenging court rulings. So the uh, judiciary has has remained strong, but through I don't know if it's acquiescence of Congress or just bullying by the the president. But it's been unbelievable how entire wars can be fought. These NSA programs, all this this stuff can just be uh, done by fiat. It's very troubling to me. 
Yeah. So so now looking forward towards, you know, 2014 and 2016, it seems like Obama lately, I don't know if it's intentional or what, but it seems like he's taken a step back from really appearing in the news. And it just could be because he's a lame duck president. I don't know. But uh, do you see kind of um, a transformation or, or a turning point in, in the upcoming uh, midterm elections? And then 2016, who do you think are the top uh, candidates in each party? Um, I do see uh, Obama withdrawing from, you know, he's never been a guy who's, who's been rah-rah about support the party. He campaigned a little bit for John Corzine in '09, and after that uh, unsuccessful attempt uh, to help a guy who I never got the sense he really loved, he just he, he felt like he had to keep his brand uh, strong and let Congress um, behave like the children they sometimes can, can behave like. So if you read, let's, down, say, let's face it, Obama is going to make one hundred million dollars speaking uh, in the you know five to ten years after his presidency is over. So there's no reason for him to you know ruffle too many feathers. Yeah, I don't, I'm not as cynical about it as, as that, James. I mean, that, that, you might be right, um, but I, I don't think so. I, I don't. I you know, look, I didn't vote for Obama. I obviously don't agree with all of his policies, but I, I certainly don't think his motives are are personal enrichment. Um, that that. That's never seemed to be what motivates him. Um, but I also think, uh, you know, keeping a democratic, a democratic-controlled Senate, or uh, trying to get a majority in the, the House of Representatives, is also not what motivates him. He's he's had uh, a fair amount of success doing what he wants to do, regardless of of whose hands the, the Congress is in. Um, so I don't think he 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 feels like he needs to get out there and really work hard for the Congress. And I, quite frankly, I, I think he just despises doing that. Um, and then there's a question of whether it's, it's effective in the, in the sixth year of a two-term presidency. Um, you know, the, those mid, midterms almost always go against the incumbent party. We saw in 06, George Bush, you know, just getting brutalized in the House and the Senate. Um, I think we'll probably see a similar tough road for President Obama. Okay, and then 2016. Obviously, Hillary Clinton is uh, at least out the gate a front runner for the Democrats. I don't even know. Uh, you know, maybe Biden could run. I don't know. But on the Republican side, there, there's Rubio, there's Rand Paul, Chris Christie's been having his problems lately. Who else do you? What other names on either side of the party, uh, either side of the the bench? There, do you well, see coming out? I think if out? Hillary runs, she pretty much clears the field of establishment candidates. But I'd be very surprised if there wasn't a robust. Uh, progressive candidate who who it'd be tough to overcome her but i mean you know i've seen this movie before when yeah when, when rudy god that would be depressing to her um, like again to lose to an yeah. unknown that comes out of nowhere but she might not run though uh you know she her there have been questions about her her health which i i don't know anything about but um you know uh it's it's a tough job to run for president. That I do know something about, and she's a very hard worker with very high standards. And I don't know that she'd do it if she didn't feel like she could be at her absolute best. I do think she clears the field of any establishment candidate the day she announces. But it could be a very robust progressive challenger. Um, you know, any number of people could could you know sort of fill that that spot that was filled by Barack Obama last time. Um, and then on the Republican side, all the names you mentioned, but the, the one you didn't mention, who I think should, should be given very serious con uh, consideration, is Jeb Bush. Mm. Um, you know, I, I have watched the way uh, W 
has had his reputation restored over the past couple years. Um, you know, that's another pendulum type thing. People were so sick of him by the time he left, and the, the country was in such crisis that I think that um, that a lot of the good things he did were, were undervalued. Uh, and um, you've seen that crop up in a bunch of ways. I just saw Donna Brazil, the former campaign manager for Al Gore, give an extraordinary comment about George Bush having basically saved her family's life during Hurricane Katrina, which is very different from, from what people were saying back when that happened. So I think that uh, I think that Jeb Bush should, should not be underestimated as a serious contender. That's really interesting. And and on the on the Democratic side, who do you think are some of the progressive names that could that could come out of nowhere? We keep hearing about Elizabeth Warren. That, that sets up sort of an interesting. You know, you've, you've already got the 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 woman spot filled, and and it shouldn't be that there's only one spot. You know, there's there's no reason why we couldn't have not only a woman president but several credible uh, female candidates. Um, so so that's a name you hear. Um, and then I think that I think that what the country would really be receptive to would be a strong governor type on the on the progressive side. Um, so you know, uh, or, or if not governor, so, some kind of executive. So it could be like a business person, you know, somebody who the, the people are so angry at Congress right now, um, and the, the feeling that nothing gets done at either house. That I think somebody who, who's got a reputation that was what was so compelling about a Chris Christie candidate before Bridgegate is that people felt like he was you know post post-party, just got stuff done. And as much as the, the famous hug with Obama hurt him among uh, certain hardcore conservatives, it really helped him in New Jersey, where you saw the, the numbers he racked up just literally a few weeks ago in, in uh, winning re-election. So I think a, a progressive who has a record of, of executive leadership versus legislative would, would be a very compelling case. So what are some of these governors that are out there? Do you see any right now kind of kind of laying the groundwork? Because it seems to me, and just from the little bit, I, th I think I've mentioned to you outside of the context of this interview, I, I briefly considered running for Congress myself in these midterm elections. And what I saw was is that the upcoming presidential candidates are already strongly laying the groundwork on a daily basis. Like these guys are at work every day running for president in 2016 right now. And so do you see that happening among any kind of uh, progressive? Governors no, out there? no, because you can't. You can't with at this stage, especially with Hillary casting such a gigantic shadow. You know, she's she's virtually the incumbent. It's such a it's such a declaration of war if you if you start you know asking people to to withhold commitments and public statements and stuff like that. So I don't see anybody you know actively organizing. But it's very early, and like I said, I I don't believe that it's you know it's it's no lock that Hillary Clinton is going to run. Right. And very interesting. Okay, well, Ken, I want to talk about why did you decide to become the editor-in-chief of a newspaper? Now, again, a lot of us uh, technophiles do view the uh, the newspaper business as a somewhat declining industry. I, I wouldn't say I totally agree with that. Like, I enjoy very much writing for newspapers. But what made you decide? What happened that got you to be the editor-in-chief of the New York Observer? And, and by the way, I just want to set the groundwork. Jared Kushner, um, you know, the, the husband of uh, Ivanka Trump, is uh, the owner of the New York Observer. He bought it uh, several years ago and, uh, you know, to, I guess in an attempt to turn it around, make it profitable, and then more recently brought you on as editor-in-chief. 
Yeah, that's correct. Um, so first of all, I want to I want to make sure your your listeners understand that the the Observer is is not just a newspaper. We're we're uh, one of the fastest growing media websites um, there is. Um, you know, on the on the day I got here, our podcast rate rating um, was something like thirty six ninety eight, and uh, I'm looking right on my wall where I track this stuff all the time. We're at six ninety eight. Um, Last week, so that's you know that's a gigantic jump to be you know among the 700 biggest websites in the United States is yes. a big move for for our company. Uh, uh, you know to get to that elite level of you know the top 250 is is a whole nother um, magnitude jump. But you know we we kind of got on the outfield at this point. Um, so our websites are growing very fast, James. And uh, and so that, that's that's New York, the New York Observer dot com or Observer dot com and Observer dot com, the Gallerist NYC, which is uh, or the Gallerist NY, which is our our uh, visual art site, and then our trade publications too, which are uh, Commercial Observer, Mortgage Observer, and Politicker NJ. Um, all do very well. Uh, all are growing, um, and then we have some other print properties as well um, that your readers might not know so much about, but that are, are profitable and, and doing well. Um, so I just want to make that clear that when when people say the New York Observer, just about everybody kind of pictures in their head the, the pink physical newspaper, but but the, the bulk of the business is is our, our web stuff. But to talk about the newspaper, you know, you're a good example of of why I. I believe so strongly in newspapers. There, there is still, with all that's been done on the internet, all the amazing publishing stuff that's that's innovated and that amazes me on a daily basis. There has still been no successful replication of what it feels to have a story on the front page of a newspaper, especially a newspaper that's on sale on newsstands. There, I, there's, I, there's I agree, and, and, and I'm sorry to interrupt, Kim, but just as an example, so just full disclosure, I write for the New York Observer, and um, the other day I got mailed my you know recent copy of the New York Observer, or this was about a week or so ago, and my wife was excited. She says, look, honey, you're you're on the front page of the New York Observer. And it does give a, a, a good feeling to have your, your byline there. And, and that's true. It's, it's really, there's there's no replication of it either. There's, as, as, I mean, I, I look at, you know, uh, Ben Smith from BuzzFeed is a friend of mine, and he came and uh, we're doing this series where, where people come and talk to our, our young team of journalists and share different experiences. And um, you know, as much as BuzzFeed is one of the most innovative media companies in the world, they're doing tremendous journalism, um, and they're doing a lot of fun stuff too. And sometimes they do real fun stuff that's also really great journalism. That's sort of when they hit home runs. Um, but even even that, with the tremendous amount of millions and millions and millions of views they get, they're they're still they're, there's nothing quite like that. I can walk into any Starbucks in New York City, and see a story that we're a message that we're trying to get put in front of people who aren't trying to see it that that sort of passive connection is is a, a very powerful thing and it's almost more powerful in an age when more and more news is consumed on the internet um, because it's it's so exceptional I had a story a couple of weeks ago about the uh, that I personally wrote about the I, I don't write that much for the paper but I, I do sometimes so I wrote this long story about the opinion page of the New York Times and uh, this feeling that a lot of their journalists had that um, even as the rest of the New York Times is really improving and innovating and trying a lot of things, the opinion page in the, in the view of a lot of people I interviewed was not keeping up and had gotten bad. Um, I can't tell you how, how it felt 
to, to see that around. I mean, you know from having seen it in your, in your mailbox, but when you're seeing it on the newsstand, I actually got to see a few people like pick it up and buy it. Um, that's a very powerful thing, and it's a powerful incentive I can give to other writers who I admire and get them to, to work for us. And I think it's, it's very powerful to illustrators as well. Well, you know, but I do think the Observer is a little bit of a different case in that, um, like in in your case of your article, for instance, you're writing about other. Uh, in, in that article, you were writing about another media publication. So there's this insiderish feel, which you're an expert on, and there's a lot of people in New York uh, interested in that type of topic. And I think if you have these sort of specialty topics with good writers, you could put together something that's unique and different from like a BuzzFeed. But in general, it seems news the news cycle is no longer 24 hours. It's, it's one second. So as soon as news breaks... It, it's trending on Twitter, and that's where the reporters look first. You know, not the reporters necessarily at the Observer, but at almost every other uh, media publication. They're and even like a place like AP, they're finding their news first on Twitter, and then the reporters get to work. Do you find that? Um, you know, and, and and you know, economically, we see it also where you have you know newspapers like the New York Times or the Washington Post start to produce you know more and more declining numbers uh, because of this effect. Uh, do you see that happening in general across the industry, or where does that end up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's very hard to break news in the physical newspaper um, because of the cycle you you mentioned, and that's that's why I think that newspapers, the physical products that that do their best work in the sort of the analysis and digestion and uh, synthesis of opinion and of the news is uh, that's that's the niche to be in that happens to be where the new york observer specializes but but that's that's where i'm most bullish but look let's not get carried away the new york observer has about sixty thousand uh subscribers so it's it's not it's not some giant thing that's going to replace you know the new york times or or any other newspaper it's it's a niche publication and i understand that we're not looking to you know to to become a million circ um publication that's just not not in the cards for us um, Why not, for, though? Why not, for instance, what happens if you were to take a BuzzFeed approach for some of your content and, you know, expand out the pages of the Observer a little bit with, like, you know, the uh, 10 most ridiculous cat things you've ever seen and, uh, you know, add some of those ideas to a print publication just for the pure purpose of adding subscribers and circulation? Yeah. You know, I just don't think there's there's that much demand for it or at least enough to offset the tremendous costs of of printing, which are substantial. We're, right. we're changing our format uh, over the next few weeks. Um, and so we've been through the pricing models with a bunch of different printers and you know, there's a bunch of people bidding for our business. That's an industry under attack, so they're bidding very aggressively. And even with, with the aggressive bidding, it's very expensive to make a newspaper. I do think you're seeing some innovation in that, though, in, in kind of what you're talking about. Like one of our competitors is called Capital New York. They do a very good job and actually have a bunch of former Observer people working for them. Um, they cover mostly mostly politics, city and state politics. And they just came out with a magazine, a, a magazine that you can hold in your hands. Um, you know, I think both to have a, the kind of presence I'm talking about where people can see their stuff as they walk into City Hall or the state capitol, but also because there's certain advertisers that, that you can get such a better rate from if you, you know, sell them a page in a magazine versus a certain number of, of clicks. So, so, again, with the New York Observer, though, it seems like... I'll tell you what, where I think you stand out and where any newspaper could stand out, and that's by having 
quality writing, which is largely missing from the sites like BuzzFeed. You know, they're and I don't nothing bad about BuzzFeed. They do a really good job with their you know very innovative and original titles and the slideshows and the, and the um, you know they've done a lot of market testing on what people actually like to view and so on. But for instance, in the most recent Observer, I really enjoyed. You had a, a full page review of B.J. Novak's collection of short stories and obviously he's the guy who plays Ryan on The Office now he's written a somewhat literary collection of, of short stories I don't see content like that on the internet you know full page you know as they say TLDR too long didn't read you know on the internet but it's it's not too long to read in a real paper and and I think that's where where the observer stands out and where other papers should move towards but they can't if you're a New York Times or a Washington Post and you have to feed millions of subscribers yeah, I mean, I, I just I think that there, that these niche things, and it's very important to sort of understand the, your ambitions and not not overshoot them. You know, I mean, BuzzFeed has this tremendous thing going, um, but it's also got a, a thing going where a story, if they get a amount of page views, it would be like a, a gigantic hit for the scale of the Observer. It's like a disaster for them. So you you have to understand what you're trying to be. Um, and I think that the observer, we're, we're not there yet. I, I don't mean to paint too rosy of a picture, but I, I think we're, we're, I'm a year in. Most of the team is, is, uh, it has bought in, and we, we understand who our audience is and, and what we need to do to have hits by the observer standards, not by some tiny website standards and not by some giant website standards. Although, again, you have these web properties like BetaBeat. There's no reason why that can't be an enormous hits generator, which could drive traffic to the other properties. You know, I, I, I agree and I disagree. I think you're absolutely right that there's no reason it can't be a giant site by, its, by itself. I think that BetaBeat is the, the, the one that is best poised for sort of hyper growth. Um, but I don't agree that it can be a driver to the other sites. Um, I, the theory is good, but we just haven't seen it. We've tried all kinds of tricks and stunts, and we have smart people working on SEO and stuff. People who come to us for, for tech news, they, they don't want to read the other great stuff that this company produces. Um, in general, you know, we can get a few of them to click if we have a really great headline, but mostly we can't. Um, and that's fine. Beta Beat on its own could be a very large property. So I, I want to go rewind quite a bit for you. 15 years, you did uh, Green Magazine, which was a, a personal finance site. I had never heard of it at the time, but I guess it was acquired by uh, Bankrate. What, what's the role of personal finance sites now on the Internet? Like, I don't really find any of that are that popular. Like, most most finance sites are more stock-picking type sites as opposed to personal finance. They are I don't all even, I don't even know what personal it's, finance it's a, means it's anymore. James, it's a embarrassment how bad personal finance is on the internet. It's it's a personal um, shame for me because I had such high hopes for Green. I started Green because Smart Money and Money Magazine and Worth Magazine um, I thought were all terrible. I, th I thought they were all... Uh, they all tried to adopt this this very similar voice, what I call the know-it-all voice, where they they'd use things like uh, the price-to-earnings ratio, blah blah blah, and they they purposely drop in jargon that the average American wasn't all that familiar with in order to establish their authority and credibility. And I hate that kind of writing. I hate intentionally um, difficult concepts, and I especially hate it when I get the feeling that the person's only doing it because they don't really understand the stuff and they're trying to hide behind jargon. So I started Green Magazine as a way of uh, 
taking my my knowledge, which was not tremendous, but it was it was sort of better than the average person's of personal finance, and combining that with my favorite my favorite uh, way of, of communicating, which was a fanzine. You know, it's just something where it's really personal and in a language that the reader uh, not only understood but was his own and sounded like him talking. I thought you don't have to sound like some you know professional CFA to talk about mutual funds in a comprehensive way. So. Green really grew fast because of that. I think I was really onto something, and I thought, hey, if you know me out of my apartment in Chelsea can grow this little thing to over ten thousand subscribers and sell it to a publicly traded company for a million bucks, then someone's going to take this idea either with Green or with a bunch of other sites and turn it into a billion dollar operation. And it just hasn't happened. You're exactly right. Almost every site is in some way or another a tout site um, designed to sucker people to buy different stocks or to short different stocks. It, it's so uh, depressing. There really is room, in my opinion, for for a legitimate inheritor to the green mantle. <clears throat> I'm too old to do it at this point because it's really aimed at like beginners. But uh, I wish somebody would do it. Yeah, it's almost like if you combine. Uh, and I, I hate to keep repeating the word BuzzFeed, but it's almost like if you combine BuzzFeed type ideas with personal finance, to some extent, I think Blodgett does it okay or does it very well even with um, Business Insider, even if it gets too far on the slideshow idea. But, uh, you know, I definitely think there's, there's a hole in the industry for that. You know, the stock touting websites, they get most of their traffic from Yahoo Finance, and that's, that's really the key to their success. If you have a deal with Yahoo Finance where every time you mention a stock, Yahoo Finance points back to your site, you're going to get enormous traffic because that's the most popular finance site out there. And that's the key to success for all of these sites. So, uh, yeah. uh, you know, but, but I, I, I agree about Business Insider being a, a good and worthy site for some things. I, I think it's you know a legitimate competitor to the Wall Street Journal for actual news. But I don't agree that it's it's where uh, someone intimidated by the language of finance ought to go because the sheer volume of stories there is intimidating, if not the, the language. There really is room for a curated, here's what you need to know type site. Um, I wish it existed. It, it doesn't, as far as I know, and if, if any of your listeners wants to email me with some examples of it, uh, I'd love to see it because I, I feel, you know, Green was, was my, my one great idea in, in my life, in my opinion, and even though I, I did well with it, I still feel like sort of guilty that it doesn't exist anymore for people who, because who, its readers loved it. I mean, that's a, that's a dream publication to have founded where you get letters from from people saying, I just bought a subscription for every kid I know, you know, for every high school graduate I know, that kind of thing. It's it's a, a real personal connection I have with those readers. And I, I feel bad that it doesn't exist. Why don't you carve off a site uh, with within the Observer Empire to uh, to cater to that audience? It, it's such a different world. We we our our audience here at the Observer is is for the the. The influencers of people who are real expert in their their fields. Um, you know, our, our household income is uh, off the charts high, and I, I'm not suddenly looking to add a bunch of people making you know 41,000 bucks a year to that demographic for, for because it, it screws up both audiences. Um, and that's what was so special about Green. It was it was written for people who uh, it was written by people who reflected the the reader's own circumstances. You know, when I was 28 years old with my first job making. 40 grand, talking about what somebody with their first job making 40 grand ought to do with their first ever 401k. There was an authenticity that that was very hard to duplicate. I think I think the key in, in all of this that you're saying is that, you know, what separates out any content or site 
uh, is the authenticity. And I think that's very important, you know, as opposed to, you know, doing this massive A-B testing about what will drive page views and so on. You're so, so right, James. And that's why these, these things have come out of nowhere. Like Upworthy has already sort of come out of nowhere, had its giant hit, now gone down. And then there's all these bull sites like Viral Nova that just like literally appear yeah, out of nowhere. Distractify. Like there's yeah, a, a, new, they're, a new they're site every month that has created, a million unique visitors. Right. They're, they're clearly created just by somebody who's cracked some kind of computer formula on how to write a headline. But there's no soul there. You'd never feel like this is something I, I want to check over and over. It's, it's a despicable um, way to approach publishing, in my opinion. And even if someone walked into the Observer's office right now and said, you know, I've cracked the code, I can figure out how to do this, I wouldn't change our content to do it. Yes, I'd like to have better headlines and better better tricks to get people to our great content, but I would not change our content itself um, just for the page views, because I, I just think it's it's not a way I want to live. So, so what's next, though, in general in the, in the media industry? And it's not just newspapers, but it's broadcast news. It's, it's, it's every kind of traditional, um, I don't want to call them gatekeepers, but every kind of traditional method of, of being informed and learning the news out there is getting hit hard by the internet by essentially Twitter. Twitter has become the newswire of, of the mass of the masses. And ultimately, what happens to the major media companies? You know, the, the Twitter thing is not is not so terrifying to me because you know there's a lot of hand wringing among people that we live in this you know low attention span um, universe right now where 140 characters is our max. But I don't think that that's right at all. I, I believe we're kind of in a golden age of attention span. There's never been a time where people would watch 13 hours of beautifully written television in a row. You know, the same show. And when you look at Twitter, what it's directing you toward is is yeah, there are there are messages that are 140 characters, but often there's links to really thoughtful, long stories. Um, the observers run stories. Uh, uh, last year we ran a 10,000 word story. We ran an uh, 8,000 word story. We, uh, the Times story I just mentioned to you was about 4,000 words. Next week we're running a 9,000 word story, and people will be tweeting about these stories and directing their friends to it. And if you look at the comments we get at the bottom of it, yeah, there's a lot of lunatics who just want to say, you know, the Holocaust didn't happen or something, but. But even if you sort through those, you see a lot of people who will give these incredibly thoughtful replies um, that prove that they read every one of those 9,000 words, and it, it gives me a lot of hope. So you know, I don't think Twitter is the end of, of news. I, I think it's really the beginning. I mean, I'm learning about what's happening in Kiev right now through people who are heroically tweeting about it, and then I follow links to smart people who know what you know, who know much more about Ukraine than I will ever know. So I, I think it's all going to work together. I'm pretty optimistic, James. Well, that's good. I am an optimist as well. And Ken, I really appreciate you taking uh, so much of your time to, to join me on this show. Uh, we've talked about a lot of different topics, all of which are personally interesting to me and I hope interesting to the, to the listeners. So I really appreciate you, you coming on to the show. James, you're one of my favorite writers. It's been my pleasure. Thanks very much, Ken, and uh, good luck today. All right. Talk to you soon. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today.